the date of James, okay? Right. Probably does. Okay. Is that a critical thing? I don't. We wouldn't know how other than just by the majority rules that forty-five would be. Well, I think there's evidence that they give for why they pick a date. Okay, and one of the reasons that they pick an earlier date rather than a later date is because James is, who, who's he addressing? The uh, so tribes. Yeah. The language in James is, is very much related to, uh, to, to a Jewish background. There's no mention of anything, uh, and there's no mention of the word church, uh, different things like that, indicating that this would be a, uh, a before any of the Pauline epistles were written, and there are um, there's a, there's some other indications as well, and I I think that's right. I think James is the first epistle written. I think it was written in uh, 45. I think um, or somewhere around there. It's, it's it's very very early. It's probably the first epistle, and then um, what would the next epistle be? Anybody know? Galatians. Yeah, Galatians. First of Paul's epistles. So, um, but it's interesting when you look at James, because that's written to, um, and, and and the fact that it is addressed to a uh, a Jewish audience, just like First Peter is, you know, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad in the diaspora. So why is he writing? You know, it's a very Jewish-oriented epistle. So is sort of the uh, uh, Petrine epistles. Um, of course, Peter is a, an apostle to the Jews, prim, you know, as his primary mission. So that comes into play. All right, well, let's uh, let's get back to work on observation on John twenty thirty one. See what else we can pick out. Okay, which um, what's the most important term or concept in the passage? Now, maybe I should have started off saying what are the important terms and what do you think is the most important? But we did a pretty good job looking at and identifying uh, some of the key terms. The, the, the but is always important. How does a verse begin? What, what's a, what is it? Does that indicate a contrast, a continuation, an explanation, if you have the word for or because, something like that. These, that's got to relate back to something that's uh, it, mentioned in the previous verse. These have been written so that you might believe, and then what else? We have believe, and then we also have believe mentioned here. Again. Okay, and what else would you emphasize? Hmm? Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Right, very good observation, present tense. Hmm? What? Yeah, you got a purpose clause. Then you describe the purpose for writing what? These signs. Okay, how many signs are there in John? Seven. How do you know that? The notes in the front said that. The notes in the front said that. Ah, and therein lies an error. What are the seven signs of John? See, Ryrie's got a nice little chart, doesn't he? If you look at the Ryrie Study Bible, how many of you have the Ryrie Study Bible? I don't know if the others have that, but if you look at your opening introduction in the Gospel of John, he gives you a little timeline 
and an outline, everything. And he says, seven sign miracles. And they are uh, 2, 1 through 11, turning water into wine. Uh, chapter 4, healing the royal official's son. Chapter 5, healing the uh, uh, sick man of Bethesda. Uh, chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. In 6, 1 to 14, 6, 15 to 21, walking on the water. Uh, chapter 9, sight is restoring the sight to the blind man. Chapter 11, raising of Lazarus. 21, 1 through 14, the catching of the fish. What's the eighth sign, though? He leaves out the eighth sign. Anybody catch the eighth sign? Or See, what you've done is you read that list of, and you said, somebody said there's seven signs. It narrowed your, narrowed your thinking. What's the eighth sign? That's right, the resurrection. I mean, it's the biggest sign in the whole, whole gospel is the resurrection of Christ. Uh, but we get these, they'll say there's seven signs or seven this or seven that, everything's in sevens, but guess what? There's an eighth sign in the Gospel of John. And that's the sign that's actually being talked about in the context, isn't it? Jesus did many other signs. We've listed the other seven signs. What's the sign that's in the immediate context? We've got to go back and read verse 24. Now, Thomas called uh, the twin, Thomas Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Jesus is coming. What's the occasion of his coming? It's one of his first appearances after the resurrection. The other disciples said to him, we've seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came and the doors being shut and stood in their midst and said, peace to you. And he turns to Thomas and says, okay, loudmouth. Oh, that's, that's a textual variant. Uh, reach your finger here, look at my hands, reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. So the sign that's in the context is the resurrection. The other signs that are mentioned in, that are focused on John are the seven, so there's actually eight signs. So that's a good trick question to see. See, this is what, what typically happens to all of us is we just, we read what somebody else says, and that limits our own observations. So we need to learn to just, that's why I say don't use commentaries, don't use uh, I know to some degree you're going to have to do that when you're looking things up like who's the author, who's he writing to, things of that nature, but you have to be careful to think things through. Now, I didn't have you read through John, you know, 10 or 15 times in the process, which is where you'll, you would possibly pick up, uh, things of that, uh, of that nature. So, these are the signs that, that, uh, Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples. And there are many other signs. That, therefore, many other, there are many other signs you also perform, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So the purpose clause is to believe that Jesus is, and then you have the, the title, the Christ, which means what? Messiah. So he's tying it back to the Old Testament, and he's identifying him as the Son of God. You have other phrases like life, how many times is the word life used in the Gospel of John? A lot. How do you find out how many times? See, this would also be part of observation. This is when you get your concordance out. 
Now, with the computer, it's it's really easy because you can just click on a word like that, and you can select the Greek word because you don't want there's all there are two Greek words, zoe and and bios, and you don't want to confuse the two. And so here you're looking at zoe, and you want to know how many times it's used. And you, uh, if I click on this resource, okay, it's going to give me all the uses, 135 results. So it's used 135 times in 127 verses. But if I want to just look in the Gospel of John, then it's used 36 times in 32 verses in the Gospel of John. So then what you would do if you had a, have your concordance, for example, I've got a Strong's concordance here, and what you would do is you take your concordance, you look up the word life after you reach for your magnifying glasses. And it gives you a list of all the places where the English word life is used. And you both, and it'll start with Genesis and take you all the way through to the, uh, to, to Revelation. And out by the side, there will be different numbers. So if I look at the section with the Gospel of John, I can just go down the list. It's used in John 1, 4, 315, 316, 336, a second time in 336. And all of these, all the way down to John 10, 11, are all the numbers 22, 22, which would be Zoe. And then in John uh, 10, 11, 15, 17, it's bias. Bias has to do with more with physical life. And this is Jesus talking about, I lay down my life for the sheep. So he switches the term there to bias. And then, um, I think, I'm just guessing, I didn't look up 5590, maybe I should do that instead of guess. Because it's probably not. It's no. As a matter of fact, I got it. Re- I got it reversed. I think, just looking at the numbers. Um, twenty-two, twenty-two. I'll do, it, I'll do it the easy way. If I click on this, one of the ways you can go to your Greek Strong's number. Strong's Greek number is two twenty-two for Zoe. And um, so that's Zoe and. And what would 5590 be? What? Suke. Ah. Suke for soul. Soul is often put for life. So in those passages, that's not talking about bios. That would be a much lower number. Uh, it's talking about suke. He lays down his soul. And often soul is put for life because that's the entirety of the person. It's not just his uh, physical life. So those are the two uses and primarily the use in um, John is 22:22 which is which is Zoe 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 times 8 times eight, we have 
suke. And in every time, and this is an observation, every time that you have suke, it's a statement related to um, him giving his life. John 10.11, giveth his life for the sheep. And John 10.15, and I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10.17, because I lay down my life. Uh, John uh, 12.25, he that loveth his life shall lose it. That's a little different context. Hated his life in this world shall lose it. Then in John 13.37, I will lay down my life for thy sake. John 13.38, thou lay down thy life for my sake. Um, John 15.13, a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's that's it. So with the two exceptions where it's talking about uh, loving your life, the one who loves his life shall lose it or uh, hateth his life in this world. All of the others relate to uh, substitutionary death. So that would be an observation. Then you go through and you analyze and correlate those passages if you were doing a word study, uh, word study on life. So that's how you, uh, one of the ways in which you can do that, and then you would count up how many times you have life as, as Zoe, and how many times you have life as Suke and the Gospel of John, and then work on those distinctions. See, that's all part of this, all part of observation. Observation. Now, the conclusion, answering the question, why is he using one instead of the other? Is that, is that observation or is that interpretation? That's, that's interpretation, but first you have to observe the context of each of those. So we go through these basic questions, uh, related to the historical context, uh, key terms, definition, any people that need to be identified, and in John 20, 31, you have Jesus mentioned in verse 30, and his disciples as the audience. That's who he's talking to in the passage. To believers, then we go to the next slide. Where is this taking place? What's, uh, his, does that have a historical uh, connection? Any cause-effect relationships? Uh, yes, be, believe, and the effect is you'll have life in his name. The, are any conclusions drawn? What details need more study? So you may write down a number of things that I need to find this out. I need to study this. I need to ask, answer this question, and that's part of observation. And then answering the question, how does it relate to context? Then you start getting into some of the grammatical issue. What are the key parts of speech? What, where's the main verb? Can anybody look at your English text and tell me what the main verb is? Okay, where do you think the verbs are? Just tell me that. Just, just look at it. Are written. That's one verb. What's the next verb? Believe. May believe or might believe. The next verb is. Is. The next verb. Have. Jesus Christ of God and that are believing. You may have life in His name. Now this is where you get into the value of having uh, a computer program, and there's some that are out there. There's the Blue Letter Bible that can give you some of this that's just on the Internet, and there's another one that's out there. Uh, anybody find another 
online, basically free online Bible study tool that you can look at. What, Franklin? Uh, what? Biblehub.com. Okay, I had heard about that one before. But there's two or three that have basic basic stuff you can look at, an interlinear and some things like that that can uh, help you find out some of these things without doing a, having a huge financial investment in in some of the uh, uh, some of the other programs. But with the um, I don't know how much of this comes across in, in with just a basic that Logos uh, Faith Life Study Bible. But you look at this, these have been written. Okay? Now, if you're, if you have a, an, I'm gonna put it up here like this and not scare everybody. If you have an interlinear, it'll look something like this. It will have the English on the top line, or, or actually you have, this is the new style is to have a reverse interlinear where they put the English on the top line. I think there's some in print like that, but generally they have the Greek on top and you have to kind of work your way through the English underneath. Have been written is, is one Greek verb, uh, gig, uh, Now I can set this so that it shows the, uh, transliteration, which makes it, uh, more accessible for y'all. You can read the English. And you have, see there's nothing under have, nothing under been. That all comes from your basic Greek verb, gegroptai uh, here, which is, and then it gives you the parsing underneath. And that, and down, that when I put my cursor there, you'll see a little window at the very bottom that gives you the parsing. It's a perfect passive indicative. What you're looking for in, in um, trying to find your main verb or your main clause are going to be indicative moods uh, primarily. Uh, so that has a possibility. But see, it's uh, it's saying these have been written. Uh, that's your that's probably your main verb and your main clause. It's talking about what's been written. And everything else is ta- says something about what's been written. First of all, why it's been written, so that you may believe. That's a dependent clause. Believe here is a subjunctive verb. It, it's a finite verb. The reason you know it's finite is it has a number, but it's in a uh, purpose or result clause. So that means it's in a dependent clause. We'll get into some of this grammar later on. Um, so that, because when that cruciality of structure, we have to learn how to, well, I'll show you how to phrase things, how to structure uh, not diagram. Diagram scares everybody, even me. I mean, I just, I, I, there are intricacies in diagramming that have always, uh, always been just beyond my reach because I don't do it enough. But you don't really need to, to be able to just write down what you think the structure is. And I first learned how to structure, a, a structure a sentence in sort of a phrase diagram before I knew Greek and before I ever went to seminary, just to try to break down the thought structure of a passage. And it's a very helpful thing to do. So just because I am I put the Greek interlinear up here, don't let that snow you or befuddle you any. Uh, I just want to be a little more precise in finding the, the main verb. So you have uh, that you might believe Jesus uh, is the Christ. See, that's in an explanatory clause. So it's not a de- it's not uh, independent. We want to look for the main independent idea. And then you have, and that believing 
which is going to be a participle. You may have life. That's going to be another finite verb, but it's, again, in a dependent clause. So you look at all of this, and you can get a lot of this just from looking at the English and drawing out a, uh, just writing it out in a, in a, uh, in a, in a, in a sentence. I'll show you how to do that later on. But back to observation here. So we've looked at all these, these basic terms, and you start writing them out, and then you can start looking words up. What does believe mean? That's an observation. Believe means you look it up in a, a dictionary. You look Even if you don't have anything better, you can look it up in at least the Strong's Dictionary at the back. Uh, it has a Greek dictionary related to the number. You look up believe, it'll have a number, and then you go to the back, and it'll give you the Greek word and a rudimentary definition. What's the, what's the most... This, this is one of those blinding flashes of the obvious. If pistuo, which is the Greek word, means believe, what is the next thing you want to do to understand the word believe? What would you do? That's one way, is to see how it's used other places. And you can do a search like uh, go here, and you can look believe up in your in a concordance, and you'll do the same thing, that get the same results I'm getting here, and that is... Uh, if we just look it up in in, uh, in John, we get 98 results. So it's used 98 times in John. Wow, that's that's an important word. What's what else do you need to do to understand the word believe? This is so obvious. You're thinking too hard. What? No. You've already understood pistuo by looking up pistuo, and it says it means believe. What's the next thing you want to do? Yeah, look at the English dictionary for believe. What does believe mean? This is something that it's so simple, but it's so important is you'll look up a, a Greek word and they'll say it could mean two or three different things. But most people don't go and look at those English words to see what they mean. And that's really helpful. Remember, we did that last time. Remember, we looked at majesty and we looked at majesty and, and power. And in Psalm, what was that Psalm 93.1? And then we looked up the English word majesty, and all of a sudden we re- realized that majesty is used at, at, in English as a synonym for power. Well, I didn't know that before I looked that up. So by using an English dictionary, you can discover a lot of things about what the text means that, that weren't clear to you before. Okay, anybody have any questions on John? what we did in John 20, 30, and 31? I wanted to do that as an example of ways in which we do observation. Now, let's go to the, the uh, assignment I gave you, which was in James, James 1.19. Yes? I'm looking at the New King James and the verb. You ask us to find the verbs, and in verse 31 it says, but these are written. Right, these are, right. These are written. Okay, but I thought it says have been written. Very good observation. See, one of the other tools, how many of you all have ever seen a parallel study Bible? Anybody know what a parallel study Bible is? And it has all these columns. One of the nice things, one of the great tools I like in in Logos is it has a tool, which I can't find here. Is this it? Text comparison. Okay, and you can, 
Let me do this. I think I can do this. Okay, I'll just put it over here. Did you put in John 20, 31? Let me see. New American Standard, these have been written. Uh, uh, what is that? The LEB, the Lexham English Bible. These things are recorded. John, New King James, these are written. See, that translates it with the present tense. The NET Bible translates it as a present tense. Holman Christian Study Bible is a present tense. In the Greek, it's a perfect tense. So this is where you get into Greek grammar, because a perfect tense talks about past completed action. Now, there's two ways you can translate a perfect tense. These have This was done, like when Jesus says, it has been completed. Okay, but he's not talking about just the fact that it's completed in the past. He's talking about the present continuing results of a past completed action. So how do we normally translate that? It is finished because it's emphasizing the present finished results of a past completed action. So there's two different ways you would translate a perfect uh, tense. One is emphasizing the completedness of the past action and the other emphasizes its present re- the, the present results of that past completed action. And so you see that difference between those two translations. One takes it one way, one takes it the other way. All right, let's look at our, our assignment in James 119. Yeah. What? Between the translations that we just looked at, which one would be correct? Well, you know, the reason, why do you make the decision you make? That's the question you're asking. It's not which is correct because it's not, uh, at this stage, it's not ob- an objective, this is right. This, it, it comes from your study. What is, uh, in John 20, 31, what is Jesus emphasizing when he says, um, these are written? Um, when it's translated as a present tense, it's emphasizing the present results of the past completed action. If you're, and so that would be emphasizing that, that this has been written in the past and the, it is right, it, it has continuing, the, the, the significance of it continues through present time. Whereas if you were translating it, these have been written, what you would be emphasizing is the fact that it was written completely in the past as a finished completed action. The, the nuance difference is, is maybe not, not uh, great, but you, you just look at what's the sense here, and I think that it's probably better to, I would, I would tr- translate it, uh, these are written because you're emphasizing the pr- ongoing results of a past completed action. But that comes from, you know, it, 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 this is why translation, like Bible study like translation, is science, but it's also art. It comes from experience and a feel for the language, a feel for the context, and things of that nature. So uh, when, when, when scholars translate, especially when they're doing a, a formal translation like that, a lot of times they'll get together. And they have to write a defense for why they take it one way or another, and then they will sit down and then they'll debate it to reach a consensus as to how they want to have that translated in their um, commercial version. Okay, and I had a professor at seminary, Al Ross, 
who used to uh, say that because because the NIV is really a, a committee translation. You'd have your basic translation committee of four or five men, and then they would do all this work. Everybody would be assigned passages, and then they would uh, debate every decision, and then they would vote. And so what the final would be, and then it would go to another layer of, of committee that would evaluate it. And Al used to say, I always wanted to put in the margin that this was a, the word of God by a vote of five to four. So there's a certain amount of art to that. That's why, that's why Bob Thomas, who spoke at Chafer Conference here several years ago, um, emphasizes that a lot of times uh, translation is like the NIV is more nuanced and it's really shows an interpretation and it's the role of the pastor to interpret the text for the congregation, not the role of the translator to interpret the text for the reader. And so that's why sometimes it irritates me because you look at a passage like John 20, 30, 31, these are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and by, and believing See, it doesn't say by believing. I think that's an instrumental uh, participle there. But that is a, a an interpretation, my interpretation based on the context. It doesn't indicate objectively that it's a uh, participle of means or manner or, or uh, attendant circumstance or anything else. The translator has to determine that based upon uh, based upon the context. And so that becomes an interpretive decision. And a lot of times you don't have in, in, in translations, they will just put a bare participle there as believing, leaving it up to the reader or the interpreter or the pastor to interpret the kind of participle that it is. All right, let's look at James. 119. Notice the difference here. Okay, we've got King James up here and we've got New American Standard up here. Uh, what are some observations that you came up with? What are some observations that you came up with on the text? Looking at James, when having read through the whole context, what are some things that you saw here? Yeah, that's that's good. It's a command. Uh, it, does it look that way in the English? Hmm. Where did you see understand this? In my, on my iPad. Oh, okay. What, what translation is that? Uh, New Living. James 1.19 here. Uh, New American Standard says, This you know. Um, the Lexham English Bible says, Understand this. Uh, New King James says, So then. Not, does, New King James doesn't even mention knowledge or understanding at all, does it? The New uh, English Translation says, understand this. And the Holman Christian Study Bible says, understand this. Yeah, that does sound like it is an imperative. If you see, if I put my arrow over the over the no here, it gives me the parsing at the bottom, it's a perfect active indicative. I mean, a perfect active imperative. It is a command. It's not a so then. It's not a transitional uh, statement. It's a command to know this or to understand this. And it could be translated uh, either way. 
nor understand. So it's not this. See, New American Standard translates it, this you know, as if that's a, an indicative statement, just a statement of fact. Remember back to um, high school or junior high when you study different kinds of sentences in English, you have a declarative sentence which just states a, a something as, 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 a, as a, a statement of fact. Uh, John went to the store. Uh, these are basic propositions that can either be stated, said to be true or false. The sky is gray today. Uh, those are just declarative statements, statements of fact. And that's what the, pretty much what the indicative mood in Greek does is it just is a statement of fact. So this you know sounds like just a statement. This is something you know. But it misses the point that this is an imperative mood verb, which means it's a command. Know this or understand this. What and then what else have you observed here? I couldn't find any connection to what went before. Good. This was an independent. Good. It's, 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 yeah. But so then, kind of throws you off. It does. It does. See, that's that's the problem. The English with the so then indicates it's like it's a transitional or a conclusion. But not only does it miss the fact that there's uh, that there's not a connective particle there like therefore or wherefore or in conclusion. Um, the New King James translation doesn't even mention a uh, the, the, uh, the verb knowledge concept at all. It's just left out. What else do you see? Okay, let's go back. What are the questions we're answering? Let me go back. I want to add another layer here this week. So we look at the Basic who, what, when, where, why type of questions. I want to get through this slide. And then this is a slide we're going to hit several times. We looked at culture and context. What's the theme of the book? These are in addition to the questions I've already given you. What's the argument of the book? Now, where are you going to find the answers to those three questions? At the level where most of you are, you're not going to get that inductively from the text, but you should. As you've read it now, if you've read it every, all five chapters every day for the last two weeks, you should have a pretty good idea of answering the question, what is James talking about? Now, if you read James, James was one of the first, uh, first books I taught years and years and years ago as a pastor. And uh, I had done some study on it before, and at that time, if you read uh, just about any commentary, or just about every commentary that I read, said that James is like the is the New Testament uh, counterpart to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. And you may have read that somewhere. Proverbs, as you know, because we just studied it on Sunday morning, is a collection of independent sayings or statements or sayings of the wise, just principles or truisms about life. They're not connected. And so if you take that view, which is a dominant view on James, James just becomes a different, uh, just a random collection of different application statements. There's, and the bottom line is there's no theme that ties all of James together. It's just different, point, different principles of application. So there's a problem there because I think there's a specific argument and a specific theme to the book. So these are the kinds of questions you derive from reading the context, answering what kind of a book is it, what kind of book is James. It's an epistle. 
Uh, what's the occasion? Why is James writing it? Well, there's, there, there seems to be an issue related to these believers having a problem with what? Partiality. Those are sub-problems. Those are sub-problems. What are the, what's the big problem? Yeah, the big problems. They're facing various, various, uh, trials and testings. That's the big problem. Uh, and within the context of how to handle that, he deals with the fact that they're they're making some bad choices. There's <clears throat> a lot of different things are going on in terms of argument and conflict, uh, different things of that nature. So he's straightening that out, but it's all within the context of handling uh, adversity. That's the question on key issues. What's the immediate context of James 119? Now, Judy made a really good observation. This seems like it's a total break from the verse before. Now, if you're going to structure James... I would say that James 1, 1 through 18 is your introduction. James 1, 19 gives us the structure of the book. And then James 1, 20 starts, starts us in the direction of, James 1, 21 starts us in the direction of, of, um, the first point. But we'll get into that later. So that's the immediate context. And then we ask the question, whose address, background, things of that nature. Now, the next area I want to introduce you to, and I've got four of these circles, so we're going to go through another one next week. What are the key words? Are, are these key words unique to this author? Anything here unique to, to, to James? Does this author use any of these words with a special sense? How many times does the word occur and in what context? That's why you use your concordance. Um, how does the word affect the meaning of the passage? Those are your basic things to deal with terms. Okay, a couple more minutes, and then um, then we'll be done for the evening. Okay, we look at James one nineteen, and it says, "So then, or, or King James, it should be know this, my beloved brethren. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger." What are the key terms? Key, key terms would be hear, speak, and wrath or anger. What else is a key term? Brethren. Brethren. Brethren, brethren is very important. So how many times is, does James use the word brethren in the epistle? Ah, that's not very good. How many times does he use the word brethren in the epistle? See, that's an observation. He uses brethren here. How many times does he use the term brethren? And what does that, what does that tell you? That they're believers. How many times does he call them beloved brethren? See, the first time he uses it is in chapter 1, verse 2, my brethren. Uh, Count it all joy. Now he calls them my beloved brethren. Um, How many times does he use the term um, brethren? He starts off chapter 2, verse 1, my brethren. Verse 5, my beloved brethren. Uh, Verse 14, 214, my brethren. Uh, Chapter 3, my brethren. Over and over again. Now, is he, how, what are the different ways that the term brethren can be used? Sounds like if he's mad at him, he just calls him brethren. He's going to give something negative. Well, that could be, that's a good observation. Uh, if he says, 
What is the word? If I call you my brother, what does that? What are the ways in which I could use that? Could be a, a sibling. What's another way in which you might use the term brother? Commonality. Yeah. Okay, it could be within the within the family of Christ. What's another way? Friendly. It could be friendly. For Franklin's sake, it could be because he's talking to fellow Jews. So then we have to determine, now that we've looked at the meanings, the options, then you have to decide which when, which is the way that he's using it. So that's, that's part of, uh, you know, doing words. So what's the key word? Brethren's a key word. Is that unique to this author? No. Other authors use it. But one author may use it one way, and another author may use it another way. Paul may use it at times to refer to the, uh, fellow Jews who are not believers, my brethren according to the flesh. Okay? There may be other places where it's used of Jesus' brothers, his physical half-siblings. So uh, then we ask to answer the next question, does this author use the word with a special sense? And so then we say, okay, he's talking about believers. Well, how do you know that? Well, how would you determine that? Uh, you could do a check another scripture with that same usage. Yeah, you go through every use in James and say, is this indicating that he's talking to them as fellow believers or he's talking to them as fellow Jews? Yeah, see, that's how, that's how you're doing inductive study. You're not going and saying, okay, I'm going to read this into it. You're going to say, here's the evidence. He, he says, my, in verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Is he talking to believers or unbelievers? He's obviously talking to fellow believers. That's that's. Then you go to the next use and say, well, is that believers or unbelievers? And you go through each use of that word, and then you look at the way it's used in the verses, and you make a conclusion from the fact, the way he uses it, what he means. And that's when you come and say, golly, he's, he's talking about other believers. So he's not talking anywhere in James about unbelievers. He's talking about Christian life issues. Okay, so uh, I want to stop here. You've done, what did I tell you to do last time, 25 observations? Anybody get any, did everybody get 25 observations? Anybody get, I'm not going to embarrass anybody. Now I've given you some ideas as to how you can pursue getting more observations. So you can go home now and read through James every day and write down 25 more observations related to James 1.19. Now, what's one way in which you can do that? Who wrote the book of James? Uh, who wrote it? James. How do you know that? The first one says James. What do you know about James? Okay, there are four different James. Where do you get that information? You go to your Bible dictionary, you look up James, and you look at what it says. You can and you read through the biography of the different James and decide which James this is, and then it's going to give you two or three paragraphs or four paragraphs of information about James, 
And that's going to be filled with different things. It'll give you at least eight or ten different observations on who James is who wrote this <coughs> this epistle. And then you can look up, um, you know, then you can go from there and you can talk about uh, my beloved brethren. You've got observations you can make there, which we just talked about in terms of word usage and how many times it's used. How many times is it brethren? How many times is it Beloved brethren, uh, are there's, is there a significance to the context about brethren versus beloved brethren? Um, and then you have the basic uh, command to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And then it goes to the next verse. So how does that, how does verse 20 relate to verse 19? Yes. Linda. So when you're talking about uh, 25 observations, you're not talking about like what you know about the author listing all those as being one, you're talking about each one. Yeah, those change the individual observations. James is a brother, the, 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 the half-brother to the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. James was not a believer until after the resurrection. The resurrected Christ appeared to James in 1 Corinthians uh, 15.5. Uh, those are all individual observations. So that... Those are things that you're learning that come to play in the passage. Where did James have his ministry? Uh, because the reason is at this stage, remember I talked about brainstorming? Brainstorming is just free flow. Let all the ideas flow that you can because you don't know what's going to work. You don't want to stop and critically evaluate them in the middle of the creative process because that sort of stifles your creativity. So observations, a lot of times, you're writing down things that you see. But don't stop and try to analyze what's going to be significant or important or write it down and say, well, that really doesn't apply to James. See, what are you doing? You're all, you, now you're an interpretation. Right now you're just making observations, collecting data, as much data and information as you can because you won't know until you get further in the process what of this data is really significant for understanding and interpreting James. That gets into interpretation. Does that make sense? Okay. Any other questions? Okay, we'll come back next time. I want you to keep working on James. And um, and I want you to look at, do the exercises in, uh, we're starting to, the, the next part of the workbook is learning to read. And I think it's, uh, I think it's five and six. Do a couple of those, five and six learning. I, I don't have the workbook in front of me. It's, um, yeah, let me take a look at yours. And I don't know if my leash may keep me from going too far. But um, yeah, there's a whole series of these chapters, reading imaginatively, reading prayerfully, reading selectively, reading patiently, reading thoughtfully. Let's look at... Um, five and six and just work through those. Five and six, reading the Bible for the first time, reading the Bible as a love letter. Now, that may have seemed like a lot, but remember, next Sunday night we're not going to have our Bible study methods class. We're going to skip next week. Hope you all still come because we're going to have 
Uh, Vita Velasco is going to be here with Stand With Us, and this is a night dealing with issues related to Israel. And she is a, a great speaker, dynamic personality. Uh, for those of you who don't come to Preston City and haven't heard me announce this, I mean, don't come to West Houston. Why did I say Preston City? Uh, she is... Uh, uh, she's a Filipino Christian. She's pr- one of very, very few Christians who work for pro-Israel Jewish organizations. She has a great passion for Israel. She's 32, looks like she's 22. Uh, very, very bright, reads a tremendous amount, and is very informed. She, her role with Stand With Us is as a motivational speaker with teens primarily, and she mentors uh, about 15 or, or 20 uh, Jewish teenage girls to challenge them to be better advocates for Israel. That's a real challenge to be told by a Filipino Christian that you need to support Israel better if you're Jewish. And uh, she's uh, very good. I met her last year when I went on the APAC trip to uh, Israel. And uh, what else about uh, about her? She's going to be speaking for a teen group at uh, Beth Yashurn on Thursday night. She'll be here next week, 6.30 to 7.30. And uh, she's also getting her uh, degree at Moody Bible Institute in their Department of Jewish Studies. And she's studying under uh, Michael Rydelnik, who graduated from Dallas a few years after I did. Michael is going to be given a paper pre-trib this year uh, at the pre-trib conference. Michael is a tremendous scholar. He's maybe a year or two younger than I am. Uh, he was led to the Lord by the same woman who led Arnold Fruchtenbaum to the Lord. They're a few years apart. Um, but Arnold, um, he, after he graduated from Dallas, he worked for Ariel Ministries for a while, and then he went on to uh, uh, an academic career at Moody Bible Institute. And he is close personal friends with Vita's whole family. In fact, I think her older sister is is Michael's administrative assistant. So it's kind of an interesting connection that we had there. Um, but she she is just passionate about Israel, and that's very contagious. So she's going to be talking about uh, issues related to Christian support for Israel next uh, Sunday night. So we're we've invited open this up to a lot of uh, to people in the Jewish community, as well as to uh, Grace Bible Church in Pine Valley, um, Sugarland Bible Church, and any of the uh, um, Country Bible Church in. Uh, Brenham, and all of these different groups. And last time we had Yorm Edinger here, we had two, we packed the place out. 200 people were here. And it was a tremendous event. I'm still getting a lot of uh, positive feedback from people in the Jewish community. And this is just a great thing. So if you can, can be here next week, uh, you've already got Sunday night scheduled. Just be here. And that's what we're doing next Sunday night. So it'll be two weeks before we come back and talk about, uh, Bible study methods. So work through those, um, Work through those assignments, keep reading James, keep writing down observations, work through the next uh, two or three chapters there in the workbook, and then we'll come back and continue. Okay? Any questions? All right, let's, uh, let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and ask that you uh, guide and direct each one in their study and help them to establish a good study patterns and good study habits and a regularity uh, as they establish a method for studying and reading the scriptures and getting more out of it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.